Um, David trained in Colorado as a fellow in ID, and while there, this is some years ago, uh, was really ahead of the curve, recognized hepatitis C was an up-and-coming area. Um, so while a lot of his colleagues were sort of jumping into the HIV field, he um, sort of chose to go into hepatitis C. This is around 2000 or so, and uh, has since really developed a nice career uh, starting in Colorado, now continuing in San Diego on uh, hepatitis C, its pathogenesis, hepatitis C drug development, and especially hepatitis C drug resistance. Um, so I can't think of a really better person to come and give us an update on the new drugs related to hepatitis uh, C. Um, and its title is Don't Blink, the Rapid Evolution of Interferon-Free Therapy. Um, David's an associate professor at UCSD. Welcome. All right, thanks, Dr. Sag. That was a very nice introduction. And I'll say mentorship is key. And I have to acknowledge Chip Schooley, who was my mentor in, at UC Colorado and then now at UCSD, has really been uh, a key component of, of my research progress. So I was asked to come up with a snazzy title, and, and this is what I came up with. But it's really not much hyperbole, I don't think. And uh, hopefully, I'll show you uh, just how fast the landscape of hepatitis C antiviral therapy is changing, um, hopefully including patients who are co-infected. So these, this is, these are my disclosures. Um, most of the work has been done on clinical trials where the University of California is paid uh, to do uh, clinical trials of interferon-free therapies, particularly um, with various pharmaceutical companies. So these uh, are our learning objectives this afternoon. Um, and I'm hoping first um, to get you all familiar with the efficacy and limitations of what our current standard of care therapy would be, which would be a protease inhibitor plus pegylate interferon and ribavirin. Then we'll discuss some of the investigational HCV antivirals that are currently in development. And then the last part, which I think is really key for, for talking to patients in, in making decisions right now in, in 2013 in April, is hopefully help you develop a framework for um, deciding what to do and whether it's right to treat now or to wait. So our first question, pretty straightforward. Age-adjusted mortality in the US is highest for which chronic viral infection? You've got B, C, or HIV? All right, great. Um, good test takers in the audience. You probably guessed since we're talking about hep C that that might be the answer. And let's see uh, how right you are. Oh, we have another question first. Um, so this is about interferon-free therapies. So despite being better tolerated, interferon-free therapies have been less efficacious thus far in early clinical trials. True or false? OK, false for 67%. And we'll, we'll see how, uh, how right you were, actually. So just a brief word about hepatitis C in the United States. Um, it's estimated probably somewhere around 4 million are infected, although if you look at some studies that included uh, what we would maybe call marginalized populations, prisoners, homeless, um, other high-risk populations, that that number could swell to as high as 5 to 7 million chronically infected persons in the United States. Um, estimates right now are about 17,000 new infections. Um, this is data from the CDC, although it's difficult to estimate acute or incident HCV infections since the vast majority are asymptomatic. Um, and then I want to highlight the birth cohort. So patients born from 1945 to 65. 
If you look at the epidemiology of hepatitis C in the United States right now, the prevalence in that group is over 3%. So um, it's at least two, if not three times higher than the rest of the population. And it, indeed, they account for about three quarters of all the HCV infection in the United States. Um, and many of them are unaware of their status. And so this data led the CDC in a recent MMWR article to recommend routine screening for all persons in the United States born from 1945 to 65 without an assessment of HCV risk, um, purely based on when they were born. Um, so this was the CDC's recommendation. The caveat to this is the US Preventive Health Task Force um, gave a provisional recommendation of C to this, although they're undergoing a review based on comments after their initial recommendation. So we'll see what their final recommendation is and whether they come more in line with the CDC in a strong backing of universal HCV screening in, again, persons born from 1945 to 65. Um, just to mention, the HIV-infected population, obviously, everybody should be screened for hepatitis C who has HIV infection. And this is just the data. Again, you all indicated you were very familiar with this, showing the rise of HCV-related mortality in the United States with HCV overtaking HIV somewhere around 2007. Um, and again, we should all probably pat, our, pat ourselves on the back a bit as well. Uh, a lot of this change was due to the, the marked reductions in HIV-related mortality um, due to effective treatment uh, here in the United States. And actually, the CDC has data now going out to 2008 and 2009, and that gap is expanding further. So to talk specifically about the impact of hepatitis C and, its, and mortality in those who have HIV infection, this is data from the Cascade cohort, a cohort um, across sites in Europe and Canada, um, looking at the impact, again, on mortality of HCV. So, and what they did was they analyzed their cohort in the pre-heart era, so before 1997. And what you can see here, the hepatitis C co-infected patients are in the solid line, HIV mono-infected or dotted line. What you can see, before we had highly active antiretroviral therapy, there was no significant difference in the all-cause mortality, whether you had HCV co-infection or not. Um, these, these segments overlap significantly that it was not a significant difference. Um, and this is because, obviously, there was a much higher overall mortality rate, and HIV mortality predominated, and really, you weren't, we didn't see the HCV-related mortality. Now, when they looked in the post-highly active antiretroviral therapy, now you started to see a wide splay in all-cause mortality between the co-infected population and the HIV mono-infected population, with the co-infected population having a much higher rate of all-cause mortality. If you look at specifics like liver-related mortality, that gap is even wider, as you might expect, for a HCV co-infected population. And then, of course, um, data many of you are probably already familiar with. The, the DAD study has reported several times, their most recent report in 2010, again, highlighting the fact that liver disease was the non-leading AIDS-related cause of death in persons who were co-infected. So what about the impact of treating hepatitis C, specifically in a co-infected population. This is data from Spain, where they looked at their cohort of co-infected patients and split them up into um, all-cause and liver-related mortality based on whether they responded to their HCV treatment and had an SVR, or a sustained virologic response, which we use synonymously with cure. Um, and you can see patients who were cured of their hepatitis C had very little to almost no mortality over several years of follow-up whereas those who had HCV were treated but did not, were not able to clear the virus continued to have um, aggressive rates of mortality um, so that out here, um, you know, you see about 15% uh, mortality 
uh, out to about five or six years. Um, here in liver-related um, deaths, again, you see this display with those whose HCV is cured um, not having liver-related mortality. So certainly impetus for trying to effectively identify and treat co-infected patients who have HCV, you can make large impacts on all-cause and liver-related mortality if you're able to effectively treat them and cure the infection. Before we jump into some of the direct-acting antivirals, I just want to spend a few seconds talking about HCV and HIV replication dynamics and some key differences. Um, so over here on the left, these are my stylized hepatocytes. Um, these are hepatocytes that are infected, and we think infected hepatocytes make up about 97% of the virus that's seen if you sample the virus from the blood. Um, there may or may not be an extra hepatic reservoir for HCV. This is still a matter of quite a bit of debate. Um, if there is, it may be something like PBMCs. There is evidence that HCV can replicate in some of those cells. The important thing to point out, though, is if there is an extra hepatic reservoir, um, the half-life of that reservoir certainly is not longer than the intrahepatic reservoir. It seems to be much shorter, actually. Um, and that's the big contrast to HIV, where, again, the predominance is CD, actively infected CD4 T cells, but we have central memory cells, latently infected cells, that form this latent reservoir that has an extremely long half-life, um, at least 44 months. And uh, more recent data is indicating that's probably even much longer than that. And this is the thing that really prevents effective treatment and certainly effective cure, at least for most patients right now, um, with HIV is this long-lived latent reservoir. Uh, the other thing I'll point out is there's rapid amounts of viral turnover with a very short virion half-life for HCV, less than an hour in the circulation. And if you extrapolate back and look at the amount of um, replication and virus produced per day and watch the decay characteristics under treatment, the estimate comes up somewhere around 10 to the 12th virions of HCV produced per day. And that's probably at least 100, if not 1,000-fold higher in terms of viral turnover per day than HIV. And the other thing to point out is that hepatitis C replicates in hepatocytes, but it's all extranuclear. It occurs in the cytoplasm. There's no DNA intermediate, no integration. So what we think is there's really no way to establish a long-lived reservoir of virus. And that's just shown here as you go from positive strand to negative strand and then back to more positive strand replication in the cytoplasm. So if we talk about the life cycle, and specifically looking at hepatitis C life cycle in terms of potential antiviral tar targets, um, entry is now pretty well worked out for hepatitis C. There are at least four receptors that are required. Um, and we do have small molecular inhibitors of some of these key receptors. Um, there's a recept uh, an agon antagonist to SRB1 that's been evaluated in clinical trials. After entry and uncoding, again, replication is in the cytoplasm. And it occurs on membranous webs where the replication complex assembles. Um, and within that replication complex are enzymes whose names or methods of action are probably very familiar to all the HIV treaters in here. We have an HCV protease. We have an HCV polymerase. Um, and we have inhibitors of both of those. We have protease inhibitors. And we have two flavors of polymerase inhibitors, nucleoside or nucleotide and non-nucleosides. Again, all sounding very familiar to HIV. Um, there's another key enzyme for H. CV, it's this NS5A, it's a phosphoprotein. It is active both in replication and virus secretion. And we have very potent inhibitors of that protein as well. Um, turns out they are among the most potent we have in terms of viral load decays, probably because they're acting on two different mechanisms at the same time. So why do we need interferon-free therapy? Um, anybody who's tried to treat somebody with interferon probably thinks this is almost a silly question. 
Um, but what I like to point out is this study that was done in the Cleveland Clinic system in a, in a real kind of world setting through a, a, all their gastroenterology clinics. They went back and looked, and I've just normalized these to 100 patients. But if they looked at 100 patients that came, were referred to their practice for potentially treatment of HCV, right off the bat, you knock out about 60% because of some contraindication to an interferon-based therapy, whether it's severe psychiatric disease, some type of hemoglobinopathy. Um, a lot of patients are knocked out right away due to the numerous contraindications of interferon. Once you're left with those 40, when you talk to them about what they're in for, over the next year or so with interferon and ribavirin-based therapy, another 30% of those say, no thanks, doc. I'll take my chances. I don't feel that bad right now. And so then you're left with 28 people out of those first 100 that say, OK, well, I'll give this a shot. And then with at least pegylate interferon and ribavirin therapies, you had both patients who virologically failed, and so therapy was stopped, or they had a severe side effect or an intolerance and subsequently came off therapy. So by the time you're through all of this, you cured five of those initial 100. And again, many of the reasons they failed are due to either side effects of interferon, patient unwillingness to accept the side effect profile, or the fact it doesn't work that great. Um, and I think I've kind of highlighted all these things with going through this. I'll just mention some special populations. African Americans don't respond as well to interferon-based therapies. Um, we'll talk about that. That's largely abrogated by adding a protease inhibitor. And then with interferon-free regimens, with very little data right now, but it looks like they respond about as well. And then prior interferon failures, particularly patients who were so-called null responders previously. They, they did not have at least a hundredfold decrease in their HCV RNA during their first round of treatment. If you come back and try to treat them with just adding a protease inhibitor, just one essentially active drug to, of those three, they don't do very well, as you might expect. Um, I mentioned acceptance and tolerability. And then again, these populations that interferon is really a non-starter decompensated patients, psychiatric disease, or other medical comorbidities, autoimmune disease, et cetera. So I'm just going to really spend one or two slides talking about tilapivir and bocepivir. What is the current standard of care? Um, so for treatment-naive patients, if you add tilapivir to pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and this would typically be 12 weeks of triple therapy, followed by another 36 or 12 weeks, depending on how their response was of pegylated interferon and ribavirin by itself, um, you see about 75% of patients would be expected to be cured. So that's, again, a great improvement, probably about 30% improvement over pegylate interferon and ribavirin alone. And about 60 to 65% are eligible for that shortened therapy, so you cut therapy down from a year to six months. So, so far, sounding pretty good. Bocepivir numbers are in the same ballpark. About 65% would be cured with triple therapy and about 44% would be eligible to do the shortened therapy of 28 weeks. Now, when you look at treatment experience patients, the story is a little different and becomes more nuanced. Overall, 65% in the retreatment studies, but that varied widely based on what their prior treatment experience was. This 86% are patients who were previous relapsers to interferon and ribavirin therapy. So they were suppressed the whole time they were on, and it just came back after you stopped therapy. That population does very well with adding in a protease inhibitor. At the other end of the spectrum, this 31%, now those are patients who had a null response before. They didn't really get anything out of interferon and ribavirin, and so now you're retreating them with all three drugs. And again, as you expect, they don't do as well. Bocepivir, again, similar numbers. The range is not as high here, because in the uh, phase three registrational trial for bocepivir, they excluded those prior null responders. Now, there is some data later, again, with the same ballpark figures, about a third responding if they were a prior null responder to repeat treatment with triple therapy. 
So that's the good part. What are the limitations of adding in a protease inhibitor? Um, well, one, it's very complicated. They're complicated dosing regimens and treatment algorithms. So I'm not going to go into the, the, the criteria, but you're checking the HCV viral load at multiple time points during therapy. And depending on the viral load at those key time points, and depending on prior treatment experiences, your treatment regimens are going to differ. Um, Bosepfer and Tlapfer are both TID medications, really should be Q8 hours or pretty close to it, um, with a pretty high pill burden, and both need to be taken with food. Tlapfer, you need to take a step further. It needs to be taken with a 20-gram fat meal every time. Initially, you tell patients to take it with a bowl of ice cream or with some nuts and peanut butter, and they think that's great. But even that, after a few weeks, or certainly by the time you get close to 12 weeks, people are tired of eating ice cream at every meal. Um, there's a very high potential for drug-drug interactions. Both of these medications are very potent CYP3A4 inhibitors. Um, and there's a, a, a large potential there. Um, I'll show you a side effect slide. Peg ribavirin is already hard to tolerate. When you add in bocepivir or tilapivir, that gets worse. And so the side, side effect rates are even higher with triple therapy. And then again, this limited efficacy in the patients who really need it the most. The ones who didn't respond before are the ones that have more advanced liver disease. And this just is going to show you graphically one of the studies I was referring to. This is the realized study with telaprevir looking at retreatment. And what you'll notice is this is their, essentially their interferon responsiveness. So this is what happened on their prior treatment. Relapsers, as I mentioned, all do extremely well when you retreat with triple therapy. Again, the other end of the spectrum, null responders to prior interferon, about 40% response rate. Although the other layer of complexity here is their stage of liver disease. So this is based on a biopsy. F0 to F2 means they have no scarring in their liver, or at most, F2 is moderate scarring. F3 is what we call bridging fibrosis. So now the scars are connecting between um, the hepatic triads. And then F4 is cirrhosis. And what I'll point out here is you have a patient who previously failed interferon and ribavirin therapy, was a null responder, who is now cirrhotic, and you retreat with telapivir plus pegylated interferon and ribavirin, there's only, at least from the studies, about a 14% chance that they'll respond to that repeat triple therapy, which would be a year of pegylated interferon and ribavirin again. And so that's sometimes a, a tough sell. And there are even questions about whether it's medically worth it for that patient to do that with the complications, increased side effects and cirrhotics and things. It's a tough decision to make. There's analogous data in this subpopulation with bocepravir, small numbers that suggest the, the rates are about the same. And here's the side effects again in, in tabular form. I won't belabor this. Here's pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Here's when you add in triple therapy. You'll notice that all the rates of all these side effects go up by about 10% across the board. In particular, paritis, rash, and anemia are things we worry about with telaprevir. And bocepravir, additional anemia, and dysgeusia, or a bad taste in the mouth, uh, is another signature side effect. So what about co-infection with these DAAs? Um, these are the only data that are really complete right now. These are two phase two studies, one looking at telaprevir here and one looking at bocepravir. The good news is that overall, in this study, 74% of patients with HIV were cured, and that was essentially identical to the mono-infected data we have with 75%. Um, but you'll see here only 38 patients. The bocepravir study, again, um, the moral of the story is about the same, that it looks like adding in a protease inhibitor and treating HCV HIV co-infected patients, you get about the same response as was seen with mono-infected patients. So it looks like they're about as efficacious. Again, the caveat being this is all based on phase two data with relatively small numbers. 
larger registrational type phase three trials are underway right now. Um, there are numerous antiretroviral limitations that I won't go into right now based on drug-drug interactions. Um, and response-guided therapy or shortening was not studied in these trials either. So now to get on to the new agents. This first table just lists some of the new agents that have been evaluated in combination with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So we're not to interferon free, but what we are here to here, as you'll notice, is most of the second generation compounds now become once a day. They have better side effect profiles. In general, the treatment durations are much shorter, um, as low as 12 weeks total. Some 12 weeks of the direct acting antiviral with again, response-guided therapy and potentially more pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Um, but what I want to point out over here, for the majority of the sustained biologic response rates have gone up. They're pretty consistently in the 80 to 90% range for treatment with pegylated interferon and ribavirin plus one of these new DAAs. And they come in multiple flavors. Um, we'll spend a little more time talking about sofosbuvir, which is a nucleotide inhibitor. It's once daily very well tolerated, and you can see here in combination for just 12 weeks with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So it's one pill once a day plus peg and riba for 12 weeks, three months total, about 90% of patients were cured, predominantly genotype 1, and this was a phase 3 study. Um, Semeprevir and faldeprevir are new protease inhibitors, also once a day, um, given for shorter durations to most of the patients. Most of the patients in these studies made the criteria to allow them to do shorter therapy, and again, you see um, essentially 80% sustained virologic response rates with medications that are now once a day and better tolerated. The last one I'm going to highlight is Decladosphere. This is one of these NS5A antagonists I alluded to before. Um, very potent, but here what we see is 64% overall sustained response, so it looks similar maybe to like Bosepervir data. Um, and what you'll notice here is a large difference between those who have 1A and 1B HCV genotype 1. So the 1As don't do as well as the 1Bs, where 87% are cured. And this is due to differences in the resistance profiles of those subtypes with NS5A antagonists. This is just a little bit more detail about that neutrino study I alluded to. 330 patients, again, triple therapy for 12 weeks, um, and then assessed for sustained response. They were interferon-naive. Most 90% were genotype 1, but genotypes 4, 5, and 6 were allowed in this study. And it's because nucleotide HCV inhibitors like sofosbuvir tend to be what we call pangenotypic. Um, they have relatively the same activity against any HCV genotype. And that's in stark contrast to, say, the protease inhibitors, which are pretty much genotype 1 drugs. They do have some activity against genotypes 2 and 4, almost none against 3. Um, for telaprevir, bosepravir has a little bit of 3. Anyway, um, it's nice because you kind of don't have to think too much about the patient population. It's good for pretty much everybody. Um, and in this study, 17% were cirrhotic. And so again, the overall response rates were 90% in the trial, 89% um, in genotype 1, 97% I think in the other genotypes, but very few patients here. And then 80% in cirrhotics. So this is really one of the higher numbers we've seen for treatment of cirrhotics with DAAs in combination with PEG and ribavirin, though, but only 12 weeks even in cirrhotics. Now what about new agents with um, pegylated interferon and ribavirin for co-infected patients? These were a couple of studies just presented at CROI a few weeks ago here in Atlanta. This is one with semeprevir, again, a once-daily protease inhibitor that was looked in treatment-naive and prior relapsers, as well as in partial and null responders, as well as cirrhotic patients. So it did look at a nice swath of the different clinical 
scenarios for HCV. This was an interim analysis of just this treatment naive group um, that got either 12 weeks of semeprevir with another 12 weeks of PEG or 12 weeks with, 24, with 36 more weeks of pegylate interferon and ribavirin. I'm showing you the heart regimens that were allowed, raltegravir, ropivirine, maraviroc, or, or T20 if anybody was on it. But importantly, no protease inhibitors and no efavirins were allowed in this trial. So that is an issue with all these DAAs in terms of drug interactions. And it relates to the fact that boosted PIs really increase the doses of semeprevir, and they're not sure about um, safety in those high doses. And then efavirins due to its CYP3-4 induction really knocks out semeprevir levels. So what were the responses? Now remember, this is just in the treatment-naive or relapser group. Um, and these are um, the overall responses at that interim time point, at the 24-week time point. So overall, you can see about 90% um, were less than 25. Um, this other bar here, these white bars, are the ones who are less than 25 and also target not detected. Um, so these, these, these darker color bars, they had a less than 25 viral load, but there was some signal of detection of viral of virus below that threshold. And what you can see is in naives, relapsers, or even partials, they all did pretty well. Um, you do see this drop off in null responders, especially for the complete virologic response to undetectable at this interim time point. And then these are the sustained virologic response rates just for that treatment naive group that got the shortened therapy. So these were all the ones who made that criteria to shorten. You can see overall 86% uh, SVR4, but SVR12, which is now the accepted standard kind of for cure, um, you see again in this same range of about 80% when added on to PEG and RIBA despite being a co-infected population. And again, relapsers did slightly better than treatment naives. Faldeprevir is another once daily PI, um, evaluated for treatment within co-infection. This is some of the um, phase three data with it. Um, several arms looking at now a broader range of antiretrovirals in combination with adjusting the dose of faldeprevir accordingly. Um, you see a lower dose here, 120 milligrams with boosted HIV protease inhibitors due to the boosting of faldeprevir as well with ritonavir. Um, this was a genotype 1 study, naives or relapsers. Most were 1As, and there were 17% with cirrhosis in here. And the majority were actually on raltegravir-based heart, where they actually looked at both doses in patients on raltegravir. Again, this was an interim analysis, just looking at um, week 4 and week 12 on therapy. Um, and it also added in uh, the comparable data for a mono-infected population here in this stripe bars. And so what you can see at week four, the proportion that were less than, less than the quantifiable level target not detected, so completely undetected, was about 60%. So maybe a slight drop off from the mono-infected data here of 76. And then at week 12, you can see 82 and, and compared to mono-infected 93, but still very good on treatment responses. Now this slide is a little daunting. There's a lot on here, and that's part of the point. This, these are the interferon-free trials, and this is not even all the interferon-free trials that are at least in relatively advanced stages of clinical trials. I'm just going to highlight a few of these. Uh, first, to orient you to the slide, these are the drug combinations and the classes they belong to in these columns. Um, and then this is the population that was studied. And it's really important to look at that population because um, it still seems to matter for a lot of these regimens. Um, I'm just going to highlight a few. The first one I'll start with is here in bold because this is genotypes 2 and 3. All the other ones on this slide are genotype 1. But this is using just the nucleotide inhibitor cefospivir plus ribavirin for 12 weeks in treatment-naive genotypes 2, 3, or it was looked at for 12 or 16 weeks in prior non-responders. 
And these were phase three studies. And what you can see is 67% overall. This trial actually was a controlled trial where they did have a standard of care arm, which is pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And that number was exactly the same in the pegylated interferon and ribavirin arm. But what you gain is you take out interferon and you go from 24 weeks to 12 weeks. And you can see, again, 67%. A very interesting thing that's emerged that really wasn't appreciated before is that genotype 2 patients do much better than genotype 3 patients, at least in this study. 97% cure rates for genotypes 2, only 56% for genotypes 3. And that's something that's going to have to be looked at further. In non-responders, the response rates weren't quite as high, although did better with an extended period of 16 weeks with 73% cure rates. A couple of the other studies I want to highlight then are these three in these boxes because these are all in phase three trials right now. Um, one of them is a nucleotide inhibitor plus an NS5A antagonist called Lodiposphere. So it's Sofosbuvir plus Lodiposphere. These are in a co-formulated tablet, one tablet once a day, given with ribavirin. And they've been looked at in small phase 2B studies um, in treatment-naive and null populations where everybody was cured with these small numbers. And I'll show you more details of this study on the next slide. The other ones I want to mention are this is um, uh, Faldeprevir, that protease inhibitor we talked about previously, along with a non-nucleoside inhibitor with ribavirin. This is in phase 3 trials, but only looking at genotype 1Bs. And you can see why here. Overall, 68%, but 1As, only 43% were cured, where it was 83% in genotype 1Bs. So this is being pursued in a phase 3 trial, but only in genotype 1B subtype patients. And then lastly, we'll go into more detail about this regimen, which is a uh, really a quadruple regimen on five drugs if you count ritonavir. So it's a ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitor plus an NS5A plus a non-nucleoside with or without ribavirin that looks very good, and we'll show you a little bit more of those data. So here's the interferon-free genotype 2-3. Um, and I'll just highlight the sofosbuvir alone arm. I already showed you this data, but the thing to point out is the large difference between genotypes 2, 97% cure rates, and genotypes 3, 56% cure rates. Um, but, and in the cirrhotics, which there were 20% in this study, you can see dropped further with a 47% cure rate, but still pretty promising data. And it was just actually announced two days ago that Gilead had filed for approval for this combination in genotypes 2, 3 of interferon, along with sofosbuvir plus pegylate interferon and ribavirin with the FDA. Um, and so we would expect to hear results on that process and potential approval about eight months from now. This is the electron study, which I mentioned, where they first looked at just sofosbuvir and saw it worked pretty well with patients who were treatment naive, just sofosbuvir plus ribavirin genotype 1 for 12 weeks. However, when you went to patients who had previously been null responders, this dropped down to 10%. So the thinking was to add in a second potent direct-acting antiviral. In this case, it was lodiposphere, an NS5 antagonist. And based on preliminary data of just 12 weeks in either a treatment-naive or a null population, 100% of patients in these arms were cured. Now it's 25 patients and it's 9 patients. This is data that Ed Gain just updated at the last CROI meeting again. Um, but this was the basis for pursuing a large phase 3 study, which is very well underway. And we expect results actually not in the too distant future with this regimen in a phase 3 setting. Um, and there's even more data with the cladosphere, another NS5A, again, suggesting the robustness of this approach. The, the, um, the COSMO study looked at the same thing, adding in semeprevir, but I think I'll skip over this one in the interest of time and just go to the last study I want to talk about, which is this boosted protease inhibitor regimen. So this was looking at a boosted protease inhibitor 
with ritonavir plus an NS5A antagonist, a non-nucleoside, and ribavirin. And I'll draw your attention to a couple arms. They looked at it in eight weeks. They looked at it for 12 weeks. And they also looked at it taking ribavirin out. And this is one of the key questions, is ribavirin still going to be needed? And then they also looked at it in a prior treatment null responder. And so the overall results, again, pointing out a few things. So here's everything in the kitchen sink for 12 weeks, 99% cure rate. Um, if you take out ribavirin, you lose about 10% with this regimen. So it drops to 89%. And then if you go down to eight weeks, you see a similar drop. So you probably can't quite shorten uh, to eight weeks. And then in the prior no responder group, even with everything they had, 93% cure rates, again, are very promising in this very difficult to treat population. And this was just the data suggesting that 12 weeks is probably the optimal duration. If you scale back to eight, you certainly cure a lot, but you start to miss more patients as well. And I think, again, I'm going to skip about over the cirrhotic data. It's not very much, but it suggests that you can certainly cure cirrhotics with interferon-free regimens as well, a 54% in this BID arm of just two drugs, a protease inhibitor plus a non-nucleoside with ribavirin. So what have we learned? What are the lessons with interferon-free therapies? Cure can certainly be achieved without interferon with much shorter durations of therapy. Genotype subtype, so 1A versus 1B matters, especially with less potent regimens. Ribavirin matters with less potent regimens. Um, it does appear with some of the more potent regimens like sofosbuvir plus lodiposphere that ribavirin doesn't have an impact. And cirrhotics and null responders can still be treated effectively. And so this is the timeline. Again, we're expecting new DAAs with pegylate interferon and ribavirin to be available at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And some of the first interferon-free regimens possibly in the first quarter or second quarter of 2014, some of those, though, specific to just 1B only. Um, but again, a lot of changes probably within the next 16 months to two years, certainly. And there are lots of unknowns, obviously. We still are waiting for our interferon-free trials in co-infected patients. They, they are rumored to be starting, and we keep hearing about them, but they quite have, haven't quite launched yet in large scale. Um, and how restrictive will payers be in terms of what combinations can be done off-label, something that was done, obviously, pretty frequently in the HIV era? Will we be able to do that? Um, so right now, there are some tough decisions, and I won't run you through all this. Um, I think it's hard to know what to do right now with all these new agents that we've been waiting for. It really looks like they're going to be here in the next year, year and a half. Um, so I think it's a difficult decision about who you treat today with telaprevir or bocepivir plus pegylate interferon and ribavirin. Um, certainly somebody who's a prior relapser is probably going to have a pretty good response. And if they have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, we're still leaning towards treating them now, given unknowns about what will happen over the next year, year and a half. Um, the toughest population to decide is somebody who has cirrhosis or bridging fibrosis, but was also a null responder to their prior interferon therapy. As I showed you, their response rates are going to be pretty low if you add in a protease inhibitor, 10, 15% if they're cirrhotic. Um, and so that's where you really have to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion, I think, with the patient. Try to lay out the numbers as best you can and really have a detailed discussion about the risks and benefits and make a decision kind of collaboratively about where you're going to go. And I think I'll stop there in the interest of time. I'm already over and we'll take questions. Oh. I think we have to do the follow-up questions, but you guys did so well the first time. I think you're, we can expect you to do pretty well this time. Yeah, I think if we can skip over these. Um, so 
So we'll take questions from the audience. If you have questions, please go to the microphone. We're, we're going to have a little bit more limited time. So who would you think is the ideal candidate to be treated right now with <sighs> our currently available aid? Yeah. So it's, and even in specifically in a co-infected population, yes. I mean, I would, I would say the prior relapsers are the easiest to make the decision, as I mentioned. So the ones we're really considering for treatment now would be prior relapsers with bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis. We're still retreating them or trying to treat them with a protease inhibitor-based regimen. As I alluded to, the toughest is that cirrhotic who was a null responder, because you're going to put them through a lot. They're going to have risks of decompensation, and there is a mortality risk with doing interferon in cirrhotics um, for a 10 to 15% chance, and that's just it's, it's super hard. You'd hate to be watching them and have them decompensate before your eyes, before you have new treatments, but um, it's an individualized decision. Okay. And one of the uh, members of the audience asked for you to please comment on the use of Strybild or cobacystat-containing oh, yeah. regimens sure. with the new drugs. Well, I, it, easy. There's, there's no data. Um, you know, cobacystat is obviously a potent CYP3A4 inhibitor, so we would expect it would have impact on a lot of the HCV protease inhibitors in particular, but probably also NS5A antagonists. Uh, again, I'm not aware of There's been no data to, to look at the interaction. It would be expected to be significant. The hope would be that you could, you know, if we're talking about treatment periods of 12 weeks, for most HIV patients, you can probably find something you can, can pair um, and get, get away and manage the drug-drug interactions. There are the patients that are very treatment experienced that require their etrovirine or their darunavir that, that are post problems. So. All right. Any questions? Other questions? Okay. Well, thank you very much. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, should I just stay? Yeah. So before I introduce our next speaker, I would just like to um, say that this week is the 23rd anniversary of the death of Ryan White. A member of the audience reminded me of that. And we obviously owe a lot to him and his family and to the people who fought to get the Ryan White Care Act funded in his name. And we're really lucky to have that here in the United States to provide care for those who don't have other resources. In Vietnam, they don't have the Ryan White Care Act. And our community partner, our, our um, partner agency, is still short of the amount of money that we were hoping that we could raise for them here today in Atlanta. So if you could please go out and buy something, even if you plan to re-gift it, uh, and try and help them support HIV care in Vietnam, it would really be much appreciated by the people who are receiving care in Vietnam. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Judy Currier. Judy is a professor of medicine at UCLA, and she's one of the world's experts on treating patients with HIV, designing regimens, and is up to date on the latest date on all the new regimens and, and selections. And she's going to talk to us today about selected issues and antiviral management of patients. Judy? All right, thank you very much. And I just want to put a plug in for that shopping timeout. I'm getting a little timeout signal. Oh, we need new slides up here. Uh, just go forward. Oh, we have to ask the question. Got it. All right, you got to answer the question. Which of these is the highest in the US? OK, very good. And despite being better tolerated, interferon 
free therapies have been less efficacious than non-interferon-free regimens in early trials. True or false? Missing part of the sentence. Okay. Wow. All right. Good job. Okay. Moving on. So I was about to say, Dr. Duick, Chardy, um, that it's great to be in Atlanta, and it's also great to come to a meeting where you can go shopping. I have to go to a birthday party tomorrow, and I didn't have a present from my friend, so 